Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. The week in sports cars feels like it's almost two weeks. Why? Well, I'm here in California. It is 5.42 p.m. on a Monday evening. Just witnessed a frightful crash to conclude the Daytona 500. And boy, we are just hoping to hear any kind of positive news about Ryan Newman, my co-pilot in this pretty much always weekly, except for when there's a vacation and Asian Le Mans series and of who knows what going on. Graham Goodwin, I can safely say you are on a slightly different time zone <laughs> than I am. Would that be correct? That would be correct. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Uh, it is 9.42 in the morning, the morning after uh, where you are at the moment on the western side of the United States, Marshall. I'm actually uh, in a hotel room in Singapore, in Singapore Airport, in fact, with me en route to Buram for the Asian Le Mans series. A little bit more about that shortly, I'm sure. Um, and yet, you're absolutely right. Uh, two Asian Le Mans races back to back, but principal reason we're here is for the first time in the better part of a decade uh, myself and my absolutely lovely wife have actually managed to get a vacation uh, together for a very significant birthday for the uh, outstanding Mrs. G um, so we've had a lovely time uh, but it's time to get back to it uh, and we did that first and foremost with that extraordinary weekend uh, in Sepang, a storm the like, Marshall, that I've never seen. And before I go into that, echo your thoughts. I've just had a chance to catch up this morning with happenings at Daytona, keeping literally everything crossed for Ryan Newman. That was an horrific uh, incident. And, um, well, what can you say? We, we hope and we pray for good news. Just got a text from a friend uh, who is a phenomenal source. And uh, I have a reason to, although nothing official has been announced, nor are we announcing anything official here, I'm sighing a, uh, a genuine sigh of relief. So you are there. I am yes. here. So I'm a three-hour flight from Circuit of the Americas. Are <laughs> you a flight distance away from there? Or when uh, I, I and where might you be? Headed. I am, but that's not that, that's that's not happening. So, I mean, to to, to be clear here, uh, I think you'll be hearing in the next few uh, hours about exactly who is going to be doing what in terms of TV for the replacement round for the FIWEC. As I say, my decision-making process, a number of reasons behind it, but the principal reason was that we had already committed to a vacation. Um, my, my wife and I associate, uh, you know, attached to the back-to-back -back races for the Asian Le Mans series. It's a very important vacation for us. It's a very important birthday for Trudy. Trudy, as those closest to us will know, um, home life for a variety of reasons uh, has not been uh, a, how can we put this, a cakewalk for uh, a number of years and uh, this was an important trip to make. So we've had an awesome time um, and uh, Trudy heads home from here this evening. I head uh, to Bangkok uh, and then onwards to Buram for the end of the Asian Le Mans series. Championship win, uh, wins still up, up in the offing there and of course still some Le Mans entries still up for the grabs and the events Last weekend, the weekend just gone at Sepang, mean three of the four major titles go down to the wire. It's going to be 
Very interesting indeed. Uh, one quick other thing to say. We've mentioned Brian Newman. Also want to, uh, to, to uh, basically just quickly mention my absolute relief that our camera operators at Sepang were eventually okay after multiple lightning strikes, one of which I gather sent the camera position to the ground um, through, uh, with, with one of our guys aboard it. The team at the circuit, the team in race control and the awesome, awesome Asia Le Mans series uh, broadcast team did amazingly well to one, get that race running and two, get us back on the air. Out of our 10 cameras to start with, we ended up with two um, and we still managed to get that uh, that five hour broadcast together. So well done guys and girls. Awesome effort and let's hope the coming weekend gives us a slightly quieter lead in to and through the race. Oh, amen. Amen and amen. Well, we are going to get to our normal assembly of awesome questions brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Before we get to those, though, in our listener-driven program, fueled by all of your questions, share a little something up front here. Again, we're almost 6 p.m. California on Monday Woke this morning to uh, some news on background that left me with no no question whatsoever that there's some very significant news in the world of sports car racing coming that will change things in a very radical way. Not radical good, radical bad. Spent the morning writing that story. Have it sitting ready to go. It's been filed. It's simply waiting for an official quote. Uh, did reach out to one member of uh, this entity's PR team. Was turned around and told to go elsewhere and speak to someone else and did and got no response. So we're on the clock for some fairly significant news. I We always, Graham, strive to... Tell everything, say as much as we can. Also, I'll admit, I've maybe grown a little bit tired of the things you and I talk about here that uh, often we either haven't written them, written yet or aren't overly motivated to write to then find that uh, these things become fodder for others to write about. So uh, we'll just mention that there could be a lot of, lot of words written here in the world of sports car racing very soon. Uh, yeah. Again, it could be overnight, could be tomorrow, later in the week, who knows. But there's fundamentally some very big changes coming and uh, really frustrating, really, really frustrating. I'll leave it at that. Uh, and who knows? I only know that this has happened and is a done deal. Um, of course, we want to wait until we get something official since this is a fairly monumental item. Um before pushing it out or rushing it out. Um, not really worried about being first, just trying to make sure that you know, if there's a 1% chance of this happening, we want to give that 1% chance an opportunity to germinate and maybe, who knows, turn things around. Don't think it's going to happen, but anyways. And so I alerted you to that this morning, Graham, as well, and I know that uh, you have Indeed. Um, got some of them good old words written and whatnot sitting and waiting as well so yeah man 
<laughs> I just want to talk about good stuff. But sports car getting bigger and stronger. And, uh, yeah. Uh, all right. So one of the things we do here on our listener-driven show is we break up the conversation topics into certain little buckets. We have our IMSA North America. That's my proverbial bailiwick of coverage. We have WEC, ASLAM, ACO, ELMS, whatever we call it from week to week. That happens to be Graham's world of knowledge. We then tend to have a separate category of general, which in my worst uh, German accent I refer to as Hagenachal. And then we have some fun. And so we tend to jump around to those three or four categories each week. But before we do that, Graham Goodwin is our official selector. So which category are we going with, my man? I think it's... I think it's been a while since we started with uh, IMSA. So let's talk about that. that It is. And that tends to mean that I fling them at you like, uh, well, I think in this instance. A monkey at a zoo. Throwing. No, I think we did the monkey thing the other week, actually. Very interesting. There's a a picture of uh, one of them on on my shoulder. uh, uh, Of all things, uh, kind of um, uh, some kind of technology center uh, in uh, in Malaysia, but uh, uh, that's where nice we have uh, the Bushus, the Hammer Emporium products are made, I believe. I, I, I did, yeah. <laughs> but I think in this instance, I'm going to try not to do it like some terrible celebrity throwing out the first pitch, and we're going to start with quick fr- uh, qu- question from Nick Vance. Hey, MP, popping in from the IndyCar side, he says. Hi, Nick. Maybe I'll. Uh, maybe I'll target, but as I've mentioned before, very new to sports cars, so here it goes. Super Sebring Race Weekend is currently an incredibly popular event. It is indeed. With WC running one day, IMSA running the next. With the recent topic of convergence of the top class of both series, does the possibility exist for a 24-hour race, including both series, starting in 2022? Uh, I'll, I'll add a second possibility, um, just one 12-hour race, MP. What say you? Oh. <laughs> uh, I, I love the idea of a baton uh, passing here, Nick, kind of a 12 and 12. But I think, I know, uh, our friends at Sebring and IMSA, they're a little partial to the 12-hour being theirs. So that's why if we look at the WEC race, that's why it wasn't the 12 hours of not IMSA. It was 10 hours last year. Um, and so I, I believe we're going to stick to the, the well-known, the reason folks go to Sebring for that 12 hour race, that iconic, actually older in exist in existence, longer Nick than the 24 hours of Daytona. So possible as I always say in the show, if you throw in a, a, is it possible or could, we're going to say, of course, anything's possible. It could happen realistically though, my friend. Uh, I don't foresee that happening. Last quick item to mention here. The series, which are air quote friends and working together on this convergence thing, we hope. We know the ACO and IMSA happens to be, Nick. We don't know about the WC yet. We still need to hear about that. Uh, But assuming that all that happens, everything's good, everything goes forward. These are separate businesses, separate sponsors, separate everything. So combining themselves uh i don't believe that actually serves what either one is after Uh, i can tell you this and i won't i can't really go into it too much but knowing that we're coming back this year nick for the 
Super Sebring weekend with the WC Racing on Friday doing their big deal, then IMSA doing Saturday in their traditional spot. Um, there ended up being a little bit of argy-ish, bargy-ish that I've heard about in background in terms of, like, grand marshals. And, you know, the one side maybe wanting one person, the other, pers- other side wanting a different person. So I'll just say if we're having a little bit of acrimony over <laughs> who's going to be grand marshal, slightly less grand marshal, I believe, though, I am the permanent slightly less grand marshal. But nonetheless, you know, when we get down to that kind of thing, I would just say uh, if if we're having a little bit of a struggle there, boy, the idea of actually coming together to race together for 24 hours, that sounds like that might be a little too much of a challenge. Uh, I'm just pleased to hear we've got a different press centre, wonderful press centre, but very, very noisy last year, and it's going to be moving to the Hall of Legends, I'm told, uh, this year, which means at least we've got walls rather than tent, uh, which means that, uh, was your, I think I'm right, your noise meter showed a mean average of 98 decibels for the day? Yeah, oh yeah, it, it was, and again, it's not a bad thing. If you're a fan and you're trackside and you're, you know, there's amazing sounds. It's another thing, you know, basically (laughs) anyone needing to really concentrate and write something intelligent, go to a rock concert, ask if you can sit in front of the the drummer and (laughs) just get back to me and tell me how that goes. And if you can do it, I will absolutely bow and and you'll have my permanent fealty because you are Jesus Christ, Uh, you know, walking the earth again. So it is a strange, it's a strange thing, isn't it? How sustained noise can actually make you feel uh, physically tired. Um, uh, and yeah, anyway, that's a, that's a well, think about our listeners. Point. No wonder they're worn out of the NHL. Uh, <laughs> listen, to our monkey asses. I mean, there's a little something there, Graham. But yeah, I hear what you're saying. We're not quite at 98 decibels, but uh, you know, we can work on it. Let's push on to something else. Uh, Thomas Alexander asks, are there any updates on the possibility of Chris Dyson entering DPI sometime this season? I need to catch up with Chris. He and I were texting just, I think, yesterday, maybe the day before. I did not think to ask this question, Thomas, because it has not landed with me as a reality uh, for this coming year. I know that there were some talks about this possibly happening. I haven't heard anything to make me believe that this has advanced to uh, the state of a Dyson Racing DPI entry. Could Chris Dyson appear in a DPI? Of course, I hope he would. He's a good race car driver and a fun person. But I don't know of anything about we have a vehicle, we're preparing it, we're going to go race it. Uh, but a good yep. thing for me to ask next time we do connect, I just not feeling like there's a high probability at this stage, Thomas. It is. Remaining questions we've got for him, sir, all rather oddly, surround GT racing. Uh, first of those comes from Nick Dovminiak, and he says, can you guys explain the difference between how some of the factory teams operate? What, for instance, is the difference between a pro IGTC factory team, the GT3 teams, and the GTLA team, for instance, like BMW RLL? Is one closer to how the Cadillac teams running DPI, WTR, and AXR? Now, that's an interesting one, and isn't We're it probably going to have to answer, do a little bit of shared answering because 
I don't know as much about the pro IGTC factory facilitation as I should of what I know from what I've seen going to the California eight hours once or twice. I mean, I definitely spotted a number of factory ish types among many of the teams and assistants, but it did at least from my view, Graham, not look nearly as this is a 100% works type outfit. Is that accurate at all? That's correct. I mean, to give you an idea, Nick, I mean, and it does vary dramatically. Uh, You will get all sorts of um, additional, uh, uh, all sorts of additional assistance, principally the ones you see, of course, factory drivers being placed with, let's say, if it's Audi, WRT, Phoenix Racing, etc., etc. In addition, you've then got the possibility of both engineering and, for that matter, strategic support. Then over and above that, you've got the possibility that they might add some marketing and PR support for a major race, as they often do. We'll often see the lovely Eva Maria and uh, the significantly less lovely but no less uh, professional and uh, awesome Martin Pass uh, with Audi, uh, etc. But um, in terms of factory ownership, difficult to tell and obviously this is the kind of thing they'll keep close to their chest in terms of the the amount of money that is going the way of those teams would those teams be entering without that factory support in many cases i think the answer is no it dramatically differs bentley m sports is a great example of it the way in which the 59 racing effort went to bathurst with two cars uh, when 59 racing only actually owned one um, in australia for instance at bathurst is another then you get into uh, some of the factory supported efforts in imsa and for that matter in the wec little doubt that the porsche efforts uh, in wec is an entirely factory funded uh, efforts and i don't think it's dramatically different is it for the core auto sports run efforts in imsa mp no and granted i guess the, the take-home here nick is there's as you know and as you alluded to in the question there's a wide variety of air quote factory uh, and how that is facilitated the core auto sport crew that run the factory porsche g team effort our core autosport employees, their people. I am fully aware that there's a number of folks on the engineering side and, you know, whatever side, technical side from Porsche that intersect with that team, but the actual people who wipe the cars down, unbolt them, put them back together, do everything in between the rounds, those are straight up people hired by uh, John Bennett's team that work for him. That company is hired by Porsche North America to then run that program on their behalf with the participation of Porsche Motorsports North America staff and Porsche Motorsport uh, involvement as well. So a blending of houses similar, we should say, if not identical, to the BMW team RLL effort uh, in a case where we have that team that is hired to run the cars, as you mentioned, but we also have German involvement with German engineers from the factory plugged in. Uh, maybe a lesser degree of BMW North America involvement on anything technical. But a lot of houses here. We look at Corvette Racing, for example. That is 
a group hired by uh, Pratt and Miller. These are folks that who work for uh, Gary Pratt and Jim Miller. Uh, but that team, I shouldn't say, but that team has been hired by Corvette to run them for so long that sometimes maybe we forget that they are actually not uh, direct hires per se by General Motors. So, in some instances, we have cars that truly roll out of a factor, a manufacturer's motor racing division. Uh, I'd say it probably happens more in Europe than America. Uh, where you can say this facility, this property, whatever it is, it's owned by the brand. We roll the doors up, push the cars out, and this is truly straight from the factory. If we look at how things go down here in North America with the three remaining factory GTLM efforts across Corvette, BMW, and Porsche, all three are actually, call them subcontractors, uh, who liaise directly with the factory and many of their engineers and management and whatnot to put them racing cars on the ground. Yep. Uh, I agree. I mean, vast differences across uh, both sides of both codes, uh, in fact. Uh, on a kind of related but dissimilar kind of vein, uh, Josh Ridgen says, uh, how similar are the Lamborghini and Audi GT3 cars? Great question from Josh. So a recent submission from a few weeks ago. Um, both ran well at the Relics 24. believe they've used the same engines. Is this the only similarity or are they just rebodied versions of the same car we're gonna crack at this one first sure so josh the fun thing is is if you take a look at the baby bowl if you look at that gorgeous huracan gt3 with some of the bodywork removed you look at the motor for example you'll see four rings <laughs> on all <laughs> kinds of stuff uh all taken out of the molds this this lamborghini um is an audi and it absolutely has different bodywork to make them look different. There are some creature-ish comfort differences, but truly this is the same model uh, run with two different styling uh, options. And what's interesting here is there is a difference in... I guess support might be the simplest way to put it. The reason, Josh, of late that we've gone from, hey, there's a whole heck of a bunch of Audis in the field and yeah, some Lambos to, hey, there's a whole heck of a bunch of Lambos and well, not many Audis. Mentioned this before on the show. There's no secret. Uh, Lamborghini is a highly motivated, highly invested brand when it comes to the cars that it sells for competition and supporting those teams. It's a fact. It's reality. Uh, we're going to bring in our man, Juan Montoya. It is what it is. That is the reason that Lamborghini, on top of the car being very well-developed and successful, Lamborghini truly does, I would say, the best job of any manufacturer in IMSA's GT Daytona class of working closely with its customer teams and giving them the support they need. Now, would we be able to get the awesome Chris Ward on the record defining what that support is, Graham? Eh, probably nope. not. 
Um, <laughs> but I would say that technical support parts, um, could some of that money stuff be involved again? You know, whatever a manufacturer wants to do in selling its cars, that's up to them. Uh, we do have the, the air quote, no factory rule in IMSA GTD, so they can't directly run a factory program, but it is common knowledge. It is not legislated away in the rules. It is kind of just look the other way and ignored every manufacturer to some degree and the degrees vary offer support to their customer teams. So that's just a fact. Does that mean then will the factories, this is in effect a factory category. You could make that argument, not in the traditional sense. These are independently owned businesses run independently as well. But yeah, Josh, we do have to acknowledge the thing that IMSA just kind of turns its knowing head from is money changes hands, parts change hands. All right, just don't abuse this and we won't get up your backside about it. Lamborghini wins. If you're choosing between the two, between Audi and Lamborghini, Lamborghini absolutely wins in this conversation, Josh. And of the complaints that have been heard many times in recent years with Audi, it's that with the Audi North America side, not Audi Customer Sport Germany, but actual the folks here in the U.S., they used to do a good job of supporting and you would be somewhat challenged to find folks who ran with them and then moved away to the Lamborghini to heap a lot of praise on Audi for uh, similar levels of support. So I would say definitely same car rebodied, but the way those customer teams are embraced, that's the big difference. That's the reason I would say the Lamborghini has become such a popular choice. And hey, they just won the Rolex 24 Daytona, so not bad there too. Yeah, again. <laughs> well, okay, we're going to wrap up the EBSA questions at the moment uh, with one more, but then one I'm going to choose to actually just uh, dovetail between IMSA and WEC. The first one is another one, actually, from Nick Dovniak. 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 Sorry, Nick. No worries. While we are all warm and indeed fuzzy on the convergence of the top classes, could we see it in GT racing? Other than egos, is there anything stopping the ACO from working with the SRO to license GT3 cars and replace GTE? This, without a shadow of a doubt, by the way, is the second biggest background topic of topic of discussion in the uh, the paddocks of the world right now. I think you'd agree. MP. Uh, it's absolutely, Nick, the thing that needs to it needs to become a front burner topic like prototype convergence. And that's because if it does not, and if we do not achieve some form of sporty car GT regulatory convergence. I don't. It, this one might be a little bit of a different topic, so maybe we'll park here for just a second, Graham, before moving on. Uh, this needs to happen immediately. The, I would say anyone who believes, oh, we need to do things in stages, we'll get prototype convergence sorted, then GT. Uh, what are we looking at right now, Graham? 
as the the biggest herd of potential manufacturers to stockpile uh, hypercar slash LMDH GT manufacturers who are actually looking at that saying it might actually be cheaper for us to do that than to keep going with our GT race cars. So that's the thing that needs Nick to happen and become just as, as pressing of a topic to resolve where this gets a little bit interesting though, is it isn't a case of what we have in prototypes. Well, the Americans kind of got their formula and them Europeans got theirs and well, they'll get together and talk. This is two different houses of France with GT regulations. That being Stefan Rattel, the SRO based GT three formula, which no, no argument world's most popular GT formula. The one that helps stockpile IMSA's most populated class and GTE slash GT Le Mans, the ACO's GT formula, which is amazing and isn't necessarily thriving. And so is there true convergence here, Nick, meaning the guy, Rattel, who has his own GT racing series internationally, domestically here in the U.S. as well, with what I just will always call World Challenge, Um is this something where we're going to get Rattel, who's not involved in IMSA, not involved with the ACO, not involved with the WEC, to come together with those three parties he doesn't work with to blend his formula with the ACO's GTE slash GTLM? No, I can't, I can't imagine that would happen in any way. The only thing I can think of, Nick and Graham, and, and tell me if you think what you think here. Mm-hmm. Bluntly, I think the ACO, the WEC, and IMSA basically need to rip that formula off and go with it. Uh, I don't know what kind of legal, I don't know how Rattel safeguards against that legally, but the we're not going to ask you to build a production car, super-ish type car, to very restrictive regulations to conform like we do right now in GTE slash GTLM. We are going to say, if you build it and it's not a freaking minivan or a monster truck, we'll taper the rules somehow to make it play with other cars. That's GT3. The guy who came up with GT3 isn't involved in any of this, but I do believe the Americans and the French who do work together need to say, call it whatever you want, but we basically need to parrot this concept and have that be our new formula. Do you think that's possible? Um, I, th- I, th- I think it's necessary. I think it's what it comes down to. I'd like to see all three organizations around the table and soon. GTE, with or without what's happened with LMDH, is getting to the stage where there is trouble ahead. We're now down to five manufacturers uh, in GTE with uh, Corvette, BMW, Ferrari, Aston, Porsche. That means you've got five factory efforts, some of which are double efforts across the, uh, the pond. Uh, and it also means that you've got at least something of a customer market for some, but not all of those cars. With the addition of LMDH and the potential, not the actuality yet, but the potential of a number of those manufacturers getting involved in that marketplace, that means that the GTE, GTLM formula is in 
distinct peril right now and that the um the solution for that potential problem needs to be in plain sight right now now you know what do i know about so what's going on am i aware of any direct talks no i'm not i'm very aware that uh, beyond all of this there's the separate parts the separate uh, argument here which is the continuing concerns about the cost not just of gte but of gt3 as well because that is principally a program formula um, we've seen as well as that the success relative success in terms of getting manufacturer or at least customer racing input into the IGTC that's the loose formation of five um, what they'd like to believe are going to be blue ribbon events it includes some blue ribbon events at Spa at Bathurst um, they're hoping that we're going to see the events at uh, Suzuka the 10 hours a long established event but not yet getting its traction in the GT3 era the new event at Kyle Army the reformed nine hours and then the one I think we're mostly worried about which is the eight hour race at, at uh, indianapolis there's lots of things on the table here you've then got the other thing that no one's mentioned here which is stefan mattel investing in his plan b in case gt3 starts to hit problems and that's gt2 so i think before we start getting into a, a stage where we've got these three branch lines coming into one main line um, there's the distinct possibility that we could actually see things spin off in all sorts of directions. Again, I'd like to see some structure to the debate here. Who's the appropriate body to lead that? Well, there is one answer to that, but I don't see it coming from there, and that's the FIA. Um, the, the answer here, I think, is going to have to be sensible people seeing that there's a sensible solution needed. It's needed now. There needs to be resilience in that planning. And to be blunt, MP, that's not something the sport's been very good at in recent years. We need to have unenlightened self-interest put to one side. I think we've got, again, one shot of getting this right in the next three to five years. It looks like the right decision has been made for prototypes. I sincerely hope we can do that again with GTs. But if it's going to happen and it's going to lead to the right solution, and that means the right cars at the right price, and more to the point with calendars that are not mutually destructive, that the reality is we need three groups of people around that table. And the third group absolutely has to be SRO in the room. Interesting. I, I I don't just dis, no disagreement at all. Hundred percent on the boy. It sure would be smart to have Rattel at the table. I, I oh boy, I just don't know how that comes out in a positive manner. I guess I need to have more faith. I guess I'm lacking yep. faith. I need to put on some George Michael music or something like that. Um, <laughs> I think that the problem in the states, I think, is you've got those two directly conflicting. Um, series with GT3 machinery and they are fundamentally different in terms of their philosophy now with the changes that have been made by SRO but I think that that does add more than a wrinkle the issue here is have we got numbers enough to make these things sustainable with or without GTLM and I think there's distinct doubts moving forward that that's the case with the budgets that are around, are around. what might make the difference is factory money are factories going to fund customer racing efforts in GT whilst also funding a prototype program? That's a question we just don't know the answer to yet. It's it's not dramatically different, I think, here, MP, than the, the debate for the one I'm going to kind of try and force in here with a wedge as the dovetail between 
um, the questions we've just answered on IMSA and the questions we're about to get into uh, on um, on Wekaslam's echo. Now, um, now uh, I need to ask in advance: Is this? Are we facing a soapbox moment? And the reason being, if we are, I, which I hope we are, our man Andrew Baca has sent in no joke a Bushu Hammer Bushu's Hammer Emporium jingle. So anytime we have a soapbox moment, we just need to call it out so I can make a little marker here and be sure that it gets inserted. So okay, just advance warning. I will tell you then, yes, it's a slight soapbox more, uh, warning. So three, two, one, cue the jingle. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's lay out and let it play. It's about 13 seconds long. All right, here we go. Hammers for you, hammers for me, hammers for everyone. Christoph Bushu's Hammer Emporium. And I have no idea if that's the end of it, but here we go again. Andrew, I'm just telling you, and he made this himself, right? Bless, I, Bless him. I, I'm serious. I say I've this frequently, and I mean it. Some of y'all are crazy bastards, but that's why we love you. Because we are truly the same. You know that I'm, you know, you know that I'm a half-ass reporter on the best of days. Graham Goodwin couldn't spell to save his life. It's okay. Uh, you still love us. Well, in theory, it could be a mildly aggro hate love thing. But the fact that Andrew is like, you know what? You guys have soapbox moments. You have an official sponsor of those soapbox moments. You do not have an official jingle. Now we do. It's just one of the reasons, again, I love our listeners. Okay, but now that we, we've heard the jingle, now that we can invoice Mr. Bushu uh, yet again uh, for the podcast, time to go, Graham Goodwin. Let's hear that rant. Let's, let's, you're going to go for this. It's it's, it, it will be a rant. And it's a kind of told-you-so moment. Think for a moment, MP, of the positivity that was around uh, in the wake, in, well, in the lead up to and the wake of that convergence uh, announcement uh, at Daytona, then remember how many people have been saying for so of for how long that that was the only available sensible solution, and how long did it take us to get there? The wasted time and energy of this prevarication in the sports as the industry around it. Well, I'm not going to say literally burns, but, you know, with with news in the last couple of days of the end of one of the most iconic brands in motorsport, Holden, um, you know, as this is happening around us, the globalization of the industry, the technological challenges, the environmental challenges, guys, get round the table, do it now before someone removes your opportunity to do it. Which brings me beautifully into that segue question. I'm going to run this one from John Miller. What do you think, guys? Could be the knock-on effect, not the regulations, but a combined uh, uh, the class for uh, LMDH might have on the calendars for IMSA and WEC. I think I know where this is going. And I, you know, I, I, it's not a question that you and I have asked each other, actually. What do we think are the prospects here for calendar collaboration? We've had that question about Sebring. There's a further question about Daytona, of course, and about um, the Le Mans 24 Hours. Uh, and beyond that, about other potential large races in both series. Do we think 
it's not going to be United Series, of course. We might see, you know, a gesture towards um, one or more races in either or both calendars having some significance in both championships, MP, even if it's only for the top class. I would have to believe so, where I think we're in a, I think this, I'm not saying I, I fully am 100% there yet, but I'm thinking future calendars, converged calendars, hashtag convergence car, converged calendars, let me rephrase that, calendars under convergence, I believe we might be in a situation, Graham, where more than ever, the manufacturers who are opting in to whatever this class is called, where these converged prototypes play, and we assume there will be a healthy number of manufacturers involved. I have to believe we are going to see the manufacturers lay pretty heavy on the WEC and IMSA on where they go and where they don't go. In this, okay, uh, it, are we going to leave every round open in both championships? I don't know. Could we have a bit of a highlight? You know, look, you can show up to any and all that you want, but if we're talking a true converged championship, maybe select rounds from one championship, select others, count towards. Uh, I'm still not sure where they're going to end up, but I do believe we might be in a different place, Graham, where mm. if this happened five years ago, I think it's the ACO and WC saying these are the places we're going and we hope to see you there. And they were fortunate enough to have enough cars and enough manufacturers to make that worthwhile. Not saying that they've never sought manufacturer input on which markets do or don't hold value. But I'm, I am saying I think we might be in a situation where manufacturers are going to wield more power than ever in saying, hey, so the race in Brazil fell through and we're having to go to Coda. Okay, great. Just as an FYI, and I'm just pulling this out of my butt, um, we don't ever want to go to Brazil again because we don't have the sales value of our vehicles to warrant that. Or pick another round wherever. we, you know, China, we can expect, forget the virus, we know China is a massive market for every manufacturer these days. That's not going away. We know that if we look at who's playing in the WEC now and IMSA, we can probably state that going to Japan is going to be on the list there. Could some of these other venues might be iconic and historic and otherwise, but you know, does Silverstone, other than being you know, within a lovely, lovely aisle that has the majority of the teams uh, you know, based out of or a large number of the teams being based out of, but from a just pure market value, does that hold up? Does Spa, does just working down, you know, uh, yeah, we yeah. assume the U.S. does. Do you need, do you want two stops, two true WEC stops? Or is it just, you know, one being come to Sebring as part of the IMSA weekend, and then maybe there's an IMSA weekend somewhere else that is nominated as a, quote, WEC round as, again, I don't know, but I have to believe the manufacturers are going to opt into this. Probably going to be very forthright in saying these are the trips that we find valuable. These are the ones that we don't. 
and we're probably not going to just agree to anything that says we must show up to everything that you choose. If you want to work with us, we can come to a consensus. Great. But maybe there's some sort of, you know, each manufacturer has a, uh, an elective round, you know, a, a mulligan round where you go, okay, each year, each manufacturer can take one off. That might not fit its target demo. Um, I'd rather do that, think, think in those terms instead of, hey, everybody, commit a ton of money to go everywhere we say you should go. And if it doesn't end up working out to what you hope it would be, then you're going to leave soon. We just live in a time of customization and not a word, tailorization. Uh, I think that's might that might be where we end up here. Uh, I think the other thing, the other factor, the factor led by the championship side is that they will want to protect two things. They'll want to protect their true blue ribbon events. And in that instance here, we're talking Le Mans, the Rolex 24, Sebring certainly, but Sebring I think is slightly different at the moment. The second thing is they will want to protect their full season entry numbers. And the way there are various ways they can do that. They can, uh, and they do, for instance, at the moment, insist that if you want a uh, Le Mans entry, uh, certainly as far as the ACO series are concerned, you've got to commit to a full season in something. And that includes uh, on their shortlist, the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. I think we'll still see something along those lines. I'm going to be interested as well, MP, as to whether or not we see a division in those regulations. When we eventually see them, we'll see the tech regulations in some form uh, next month at Sebring, we believe. But then the sporting regulations, whether we see a division uh, between factory nominated entries in that overall class whatever it's uh, going to be called and customer cars because that's interesting as well you know we could we, you know if it, let, let's make no mistake if this is the success that it can and you might argue should be, then we could be talking, I don't want to use the word unprecedented, but significant numbers of top-class cars across the two championships. And as a combined field, the likes of which we probably haven't seen since Group C days. So that's the potential for this class, if they get it right. Um, you know, that, that Once you get into those kind of numbers, it opens up all sorts of possibilities for either absolute common sense from race organizers um, and rule makers and for that matter the competitors or all manner of asshattery um, that decides who's going to be uh, in the seats of power and control i hope we get to the former because actually i think the opportunities here are enormous to actually break through um, with some, you know, with audiences that, frankly, have not really been exposed to the wonders of endurance racing to this point. I really feel a need to play our beloved Bushu's <laughs> Hammer Emporium jingle as an outro here. So here we go. Hammers for you, hammers for me, hammers for everyone. Christoph Bushu's Hammer Emporium. And thank you to Andrew yet again for that just piece of, of uh, it's going to win an Oscar. Genius. It's going to win an Oscar. Uh, it's going to win the, win the uh, People's Choice Awards. Uh, it might start rap battles from coast to coast. So, <sighs> all right, my friend, I believe we trade hurling. We're going to trade hurlings. 
of things, it's my turn to throw Weckasm Elms Echo at you, and I hope Yay. it doesn't hurt too much. By the way, I saw a photo of you and your beloved Trudy. Um, was it washing or uh, an elephant yes. or praying to a, a Buddha? What no. was that exactly? Oh no, no, that was that was Trudy's birthday, and uh, yeah, we don't talk about ladies' birthdays and what they are, but it had a zero on, and um, it was a significant number within. Um, she's a hundred. No, oh. um, so she's a hundred on the foxy side, but uh, but certainly not in terms of the the age so far. But a significant birthday. What a great thing to do! It was the National Elephant Sanctuary. It's about an hour and a half out of Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, and um, yeah, amongst the the things that uh, you are you know encouraged and allowed to do is to go in with the orphaned baby elephants. In this case, our, our elephant was about two years old. Absolutely lovely, um, loving the attention, and with the assistance and the volunteers in the river there and helping to bathe and exfoliate a baby elephant. What could be better than that? Absolutely amazing day. And if you're in this area of the, uh, the world, I heartily recommend it. Amazing people. And the, the elephants are just the most magnificent animals. They really are. And, you know, of course, in this day and age, uh, much of our flora and fauna um, is getting to the stage where it's in some peril. And great to see humanity uh, pushing in a direction to actually help these magnificent beasts. And by magnificent beasts, by the way, I don't mean me. I mean the elephant. Aww. Well, we're going to go to Kevin Payne, who says, Graham, can you make any sense of Peugeot Sports announcement over the past few days since Rebellion Racing made their decision to exit the sport? Thanks uh, due to them for their perseverance in LMP1. We've got a couple of other Rebellion-related questions, but let's start off with this one. Let's kick it off, and, and I may be covering some of the bases that we've seen elsewhere for a number of the questioners coming. So, little doubt that the announcement from Rebellion that they are pulling out of motorsports entirely um, was a surprise to Peugeot. Uh, little doubt at all about that. What has driven that? It's clearly uh, the um, commercial realities and uh, priorities for the Rebellion brand. Of course, it's a premium watch brand. has all sorts of sub-brands around it. Uh, that decision came directly from a board meeting, in not a dissimilar way, by the way, that the initial Peugeot announcement came directly from a board meeting and surprised everybody. Uh, there's been much said and uh, no little written. Uh, I've got some catching up to do in terms of some comments I collected during uh, the Rolex 24 hours, but I've been away from a keyboard for a week or so. Um, to do with Orica's involvement in that decision-making process and where they go next, and to, for that matter, from some comments made by Peugeot about Ligier. First and foremost, Peugeot's statement explicitly says at the moment they are pursuing their program as a hypercar. In other words, the hypercar regulations are the direction they're pursuing at the moment. They have also said that they're keeping a very interested view on LMDH. So in other words, they've not made the decision. They're going through concept stage at the moment. As far as Ligier is concerned, Ligier have not been appointed as a chassis supplier as yet at least. Uh, they've been appointed as consultants to work up the aerodynamic package for this car. should also say, by the way, that uh, uh, Jacques-Pierre Licolet and their family company have invested very heavily indeed in carbon fibre uh, production, component production, and therefore are in a good place to be a 
you know, a, a significant technical partner for that program. Of course, they've not been provo- uh, appointed as a chassis supplier yet because, one, we haven't seen the technical regulations for LMDH. Um, so if the decision is going to be made one way or the other, why would you? The reason why Orica are out of the game here is that because Peugeot at the moment are continuing with hypercar. Peugeot made it very clear indeed during uh, – sorry, uh, apologies. Orica made it clear during uh, Daytona week, the Rolex 24 week, that they were putting all of their eggs now into the LMP2 slash LMDH um, baskets, that they're looking at the potential for multiple um, factory and customer efforts uh, with their new chassis, and that's where Hugh de Schoenach, David Fleur and, and uh, Fleury and his, his people believe that the significantly increased capacity that they're going to be putting in place uh, with a new factory going in for Orica, that's where they need to be putting their commercial eggs into that basket. So what's going on? Persia will continue. It will be a factory effort without the input from Rebellion Racing. Um, and uh, Ligier pretty clearly are in a very good place to be named as a very significant partner, technical partner for that effort. Will we, might we see uh, another team involved with that effort? I think there's every every likelihood that we may well see uh, other partners with that effort. Um, as for Rebellion's contribution, well, it goes back an awfully long way. It goes back prior to Rebellion's um, naming of that program to all sorts of things speedy garage Sieber racing with the you know, the late and very great Hugh Hayden his son Bart being involved in that effort and let's be blunt they provided something of a spine for um LMP1 racing as significant privateers and before that LMP2 for a large number of years it's with sorrow and with thankfulness that I look back and think of the glory days that they've actually seen down through the years, including, you know, a couple of fourth places overall um, at Le Mans. Two wins, I think I'm right, aren't I, at Petit Le Mans uh, back in the day. And, you know, some awesome drivers that have come through that program, not least of which a number of factory drivers, Neil Janney, of course, uh, uh, a man that uh, did great things with them back in the day before being picked up by... Uh, but by Porsche that launched him to a world championship. Uh, very, very sorry to see them go. It, of course, leaves questions about the uh, the bridging gap for 2020, 2021 and the top class uh, in the FIAWC. And I'm sure my colleague, Stephen Kilby, who'll be on his way to Cota uh, presently, will be asking questions about just that when he gets there on behalf of Daily Sports Car, on behalf of Race.com, Marshall. Yeah, and I am due to speak with uh, our man, Mr. Kaleem, uh, from the Rebellion side here maybe even tomorrow try and get a little bit more insight about this decision have heard some other things related to the brand don't want to get into that now until i speak with him but yeah um was surprised at this for one reason graham i don't know how many rebellion watches they have sold through this racing program i've never viewed the racing program as something that was marketing led real 
and mm-hmm. right and that's no disrespect uh this there are some racing efforts that happen that have a brand attached to it i don't mean auto but some sort of brand where you go oh cool that's the name of the thing you're using to write the whole thing off as a marketing expense you know <laughs> compared to oh this is the actual name the oil brand company that is involved and they're using the participation in the sport to learn and develop the brand and this is the just the center of all that they do not saying the folks at rebellion don't love racing etc etc but i've never viewed this as a oh yeah clearly you sell enough rebellion watches per year for the profits therefore to add up to name how many untold millions of dollars right i mean this has been a gentleman's uh, sporting passion with profits from the the bigger company uh non-watch related to help fund all of this uh so the surprise landed with me as a oh well that's interesting i just never i didn't even know you had a board i'll be really honest i had no idea there was a board that could decide to go somewhere else but uh hopefully i can report back more find out if this is truly gone uh let's see so we've already covered off a little bit of what Stephen armstrong and uh, was asking about up at the lmdh side i've heard Stephen, that they're going lmdh so again could be wrong but uh, that's what i've would heard be, would be for me the entirely sensible move at this stage uh let's see also mentions talking about teams to potentially run it knowing that rebellion is no longer that built-in infrastructure to receive the vehicles uh, from Peugeot to then run. Uh, Stephen adds, I'd find it extremely ironic if Team Yost would be brought in to run the Peugeot effort after the impending divorce from Maz and Imps after Sebring. Now that would be a good one, my friend. Um, <laughs> let's see. John Richter says, what is the fallout for the team? Uh, the actual rebellion side. He wonders, okay. do you think some might head to the Peugeot hypercar program? Uh, and also asks, what do you think of, along with Alex Eichmiller, want to know what do you think, Graham, in terms of the team's impact and their legacy in the sport? Uh, well, on the team, that's a pretty simple one. There are very, very few of the original Rebellion Racing team left on board, particularly because of the uh, the contraction to a single car effort for a full season. There will be, of course, two cars, we believe still for the moment, for Spa and for Le Mans. Uh, that but basically was uh, around the Zebra Racing effort in the UK, owned and run by Bart Hayden. Uh, very few of his guys were left. For this current season it was almost exclusively a uh, orica run efforts with a number of very talented guys brought in justin marks being one as one of the race engineers ex audi of course but the uh, the key i think there is that most of the orica guys will simply plug and play into orica's other programs their customer support for whatever is coming next some of those same guys i'm sure are involved at least peripherally in the acura efforts uh, in uh, imsa so the answer there is um don't think you're going to see anybody or very 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 few indeed uh, transferring to persia persia have got their own people they're building up a team um they are getting active now uh going through design into design development and then into race phase and we'll see what emerges from there as for rebellion's legacy they are you know in the current generation the standouts most successful 
privateer LMP1 team of the modern era. Now, you know, you could be cynical and say they've not had a great deal of competition. The reality is they've had a fair amount of competition. They effectively picked up the baton from Henri Pescarolo and ran with it. And I think we should be very grateful for that. Uh, there's a number of people, I, I think we've said it before here, MP, that would observe this. Had we not had this generation of LMP1 uh, hybrid cars, there's no doubt that the various offerings, whether it be Lola or the Oracle built Rebellion chassis, would be viewed as being all kinds of standalone awesome, the biggest, baddest sports cars of their generation. The fact that they were simply outgunned by you know, multi-multi-million-euro factory efforts should take nothing away from the scale of ambition and achievement in terms of performance that uh, that came from, you know, the uh, the Brains Trust at Ciba, at Orica, at Rebellion Racing, you know, uh, in the time back then at Toyota, at AER, Gibson, etc., etc. You know, these are motorsport guys taking a rule book deconstructing it, building a car around that and doing the best they can against the regulations they're presented with. And I find it sad, unfortunately, that the failure that was equivalent to technology in the privateer versus factory effort, uh, efforts uh, didn't give us an opportunity more than at Shanghai so far uh, to see what they could actually do. Um, I, I'll mourn the loss without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very sad I can't be you know, a coater to go and shake some people by the hand, but I'll get that opportunity next time around. Um, yeah, celebrate what they did. Remember what they did. Um, and let's let's hope and pray that the next era presents us with similar people with lofty ambition uh, to do the same to other factory teams. I'll add to that. My favorite memory of the Rebellion program and Graham Ingleby also asks, uh, what's favorite rebellion story? I don't have a favorite story, but I will just add to Graham's comments. I love and loved the fact that they lived up to their name. Now, granted, as you <laughs> mentioned, we had the speedy Seba, and, you know, there are some iterations beforehand, but in what we call today as rebellion racing, I love the fact, Graham, that this was the perfect name the perfect fit for who they are and what they represented in the paddock. Oh, look at that really nice, cute factory thing. Guess what? We're building our own. <laughs> we're going to build this thing with a Reka and we're going to go and fight you. And yeah, you guess what? We didn't win or, you know, we didn't uh, win championships. We didn't knock down the big factories race after race. Okay. Got it. Uh, you know, some of that's just nature, right? You can, equivalence of technology up the wazoo it's not going to change the fact that the team with lots more resources is going to beat the ones with lots less i just love the fact that they did they were the rebellion within the paddock they led that rebel effort so often among the privateers and i'm just talk, not just talking the last couple of years where things have been light just the toyota factory years before that as well whether it was in the true dedicated privateer class, even before that, this is a, a group that showed up at the races thinking of themselves as the others. You know, they fell into the other category and they wanted to do everything they could to disrupt the haves. And 
even if it didn't work out in their favor, the vast majority of the time, damn it, I love that spirit. And so that's the thing I'm going to miss most of all. I hope that Bart Hayden and company can find something else to do for someone. Uh, boy, uh, that spirit, that's the rarity, Graham. Forget the, the yep. actual name, the watch brand. You know, I don't mean truly forget. I'm just saying that's great. That was the financial engine to make this stuff happen. Those folks didn't just take on that mindset the minute a watch brand was a uh, branding was applied to the cars. It was there beforehand. So I just really hope we don't lose that from the sport um, after the company pulls out. I'll give you one quick memory. It's not a racing memory. It's just an awesome little thing they did. Oddly enough, in the year, the last year, they didn't do P1. They did, of course, that single year in LMP2 with the two-car Orica squad. And it was a little additional thing they did for the fans uh, on the pit walks at Le Mans with the Valiante uh, Rebellion efforts. And that was, they had the Michel Vion artists uh, on the autograph session on a separate table from the drivers doing custom Michel Viant artwork for anybody that wanted it in a program on a rough piece of paper, whatever it was. I just thought that was absolutely amazing as somebody that's in my later years. I mean, uh, a, 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 a beloved member of my family used to read the, the Michel Viant um, books and I'm collecting quietly uh, some of them in the background and I just think the, the artwork is just stunning and that was for me just a mark that somebody within that organisation had seen here's something we can do for the fans here's something we can do for the enthusiasts here. As for Bart, Bart Hayden I've zero doubt that with the level of experience and achievement he's got he'll be picked up in a heartbeat by somebody and I expect to see Bart in a factory shirt somewhere uh, when we get into next season. We are going to go to, I'm trying to just look here and see if there's anything else. I think we're done with Pugiat, as it was sometimes yep. referred to in Americanized language. Pugiat. <laughs> or, or I had one kid in high school who pronounced it as Pigay. Pigay. Oh, hmm. We're, Nelson Pigay. Yes, we're an interesting <laughs> lot here in America. Uh, we're going to go to our pal. One of our all-time favorite screen names, SRA, Smoking Puppy, 841, says, If, as rumored, the Team Project 1 ELMS entry was rejected, how does this affect their Le Mans auto-invite, which this entry would have been a supplement for, I believe? That's a lot of inside Um, baseball you might need to explain to folks who have no idea what we're talking about. I will. That, that basically means that uh, it comes back to something I said earlier in the show, MP, that if you're going to take up an auto-invitation for success on track, that you have to enter um, a car in another ACO series. Now, absolutely, and I think I wrote that we were expected to see Project 1 with an entry. That did not emerge. I have no information as to whether or not that was rejected or uh, whether or not the team opted not to go forward with that third entry. Um, I do know that whilst we have had the 40 car, and that was slightly less than I expected to see, 40 car EMS entry, uh, that there might well not, there might well be more than the, that number of cars actually appearing, uh, one for the season and potentially, but I know for a definite, we've got another uh, car that's been 
held back that we'll hear a little bit about in the coming weeks. Um, we don't know yet, by the way, whether or not Project One might actually enter a car in the uh, Michelin Le Mans Cup, which would count, by the way. Uh, that would be um, you know, a full-season entry in an ACO series. They would preserve their uh, third Le Mans entry simply by doing that. Third, because, of course, they have a two-car full-season uh, entry for uh, the FIWC. And by the way, watch for what will emerge at Cota for one of those two entries. You are going to like it. Um, so I think the, en- the answer there is we wait and see what happens. And yes, that is my first wait and see of this week's uh, hashtag twist. Hashtag let's um, wait and see. That's wait and see. Um, but uh, Team Project One, they don't like ambition. Uh, they've got some awesome customers with uh, with Ben Keating, with Egidio Perfetti, and the um, the cast of thousands surrounds that. Um, and I don't think their efforts going uh, away any time soon. We are going to our man Daniel Summerskill, who says, mm. "Do you think that the ASO and IMSA will alter the rules of LMDH to allow Ferrari to compete with their own chassis and engine? Do you think being based on an LMP2 chassis?" will put off manufacturers. And this, as I mentioned, some are alluded to at the opening of the show. So, Daniel, this is something we mentioned on the good old podcast here multiple times late last year, maybe early into this year as well, about Ferrari and hearing that they had wanted to yep. do their own thing. And oddly enough, someone just wrote a story about it. Um, enough. <laughs> here's, um, here's what I would say, Danielle, and I realize this is Graham's topic, which obviously you can take too, but... I am hashtag me personally believing that while contracts extending the supply agreement with the four current P2 suppliers who would then provide future LMDH customized chassis, uh, I'm sorry, customized bodywork and uh, overall uh, chassis, uh, power plants, whatever for manufacturers, I would say that. It would be smart of the ACO and IMSA to accept Ferrari's interest and air quote offer if there is a proviso that says, so you want to become the fifth? We can do that, but you need to commit now to building, pick what the number is, minimum of six, uh, if not 10. And if you can commit to that, ironclad going to happen then great if we are going to expand beyond our plans and you want to become the one and only manufacturer making your own car well keep in mind there's probably going to be other manufacturers that say well but we want to do that too uh acura i guarantee you they would want to make their own i don't know if cadillac would i don't know if they'd need to they they really seem to have found the magic sauce with delara so maybe that works out fine uh, I, Mazda does not have the infrastructure to make their own. They would need to rely on an external vendor like Multimatic. So I don't know if Mazda would so much raise their hand there. But I would just say, Daniel, if Ferrari wants to do this and they are going to guarantee six cars will be on the grid uh, or 10 spanning IMSA and the ACO slash WEC, then I would say that would be a reason to advanced conversations if ferrari is not willing to guarantee that uh and you know you probably have to throw in some other stipulations right graham 
these cars cannot be sold to private owners uh collectors or otherwise you know there's a 10-year competition clause, and i'm just making this up but we know how collectible ferraris are i'm sure there are some folks who would buy them with no intention uh, of actually entering them at an aco or imsa event so if we're talking about are we going to make an exception because you want to do the whole thing i'd say there might have to be a clause that gets created if they were to pull the other manufacturers and there were enough that said yeah we want to do this you go great well a first of all we need to make sure you don't spend yourself into oblivion and blow up the formula but if you there could be an option to do this but with it comes guarantees that there's going to be x amount of cars you cannot deny if someone can show up and buy it you can't turn them away there needs to be free market etc etc you know uh, if ferrari wants to be treated in a special way daniel i would say that they need to ensure they won't act special once those cars are built and they won't be going into non-racing hands as investments uh, I'll tell you what, I'm going to offer a counterpoint to that uh, because I agree Good. to a degree. I mean, you, you, cannot, you cannot ignore the vast pluses of having Ferrari in a top class. Can't ignore that. But I'm over Ferrari deciding that they're going to make the rules in yet another uh, racing championship. We've had it for years and years and years with a ridiculous unfair advantage uh, in Formula One. Um, and I think... I'm, I'm kind of sort of looking at the list of questions we've got here and, and scanning ahead. If I were Ferrari, you want to do your own thing. What I would do is I'd be picking up the phone to an angry man in Yorkshire and I'd be saying, hey, Lawrence Tomlinson, what, what say we lobby together to make a fifth manufacturer here? Get it done that way. Ferrari get the chassis that they want. Ginetta get the opportunity for a link with a major manufacturer and then get to market their own LMP2 car, which, by the way, is the one part of this LMDH uh, proposal that I fundamentally disagree with. It's very clear that a deal has been done between the ACO and IMSA to protect the interests of the current manufacturers and the current um, uh, suppliers in both those championships but i do think it is profoundly unfair uh, on one entity and one entity only and that is Ginetta. they've invested in lmp3 they invested in lmp1 they're left with a massive hole in their product portfolio which means they develop a customer base in lmp3 and we'll be hearing this week about some of those customers by the way racing this year and then what happens you get success you go and win races you go and win championships we'd like to go to lmp2 oh sorry we haven't got one of those that's just wrong and by the way it undermines if not promises then certainly some reassurances that were given in not getting a license back in 2017 to produce those things so there's my answer to you is ferrari want to do a bespoke chassis there's an available option there's an available uh, uh, lobbying point and that i would support i fundamentally would not support ferrari doing their own thing with their own chassis i think they need to invest in the platform and the platform has been designed for specialist motorsports uh, manufacturers to get stuck in there um i'm not supportive of ferrari getting the green light to do it just their own way because i think that starts an arms race that we would find difficult to contain within the administrative and technical resources that we know have been exposed badly in the past here i think what they need to do is to uh how can put this fine tune rather than open and stable the 
I agree. And the guy who had the counter opinion to start is a complete idiot. I would also say when you unplug your uh, USB headset there and reconnect it because you're starting to the robots. Yes, Skynet starting to get a hold of us here. I'm hoping that's better. Yes, there we go. Lovely. And uh, while you were doing that, I'm just uh, posting something to Facebook here. Uh, I'm happy to see that my friends at Bimmer World have announced they are headed back to uh, World Challenge SRO America season. Uh, and probably the best combo I can think of, the BMW team here, has the support this year from the factory with the allocation of Bill Arberlin, which is great. And one of their sponsors on one of the car makes artisan pork rinds. So um, (laughs) I would say that is a Charlie Sheen hashtag winning uh, moment right there. Um, So as you hear me typing away in the background, so off we go. Uh, All right, where are we going to go next? Where are we going to go next? We are going to go to... Corvette GTE program. Michael Metropolis. Graham. Would Corvette Racing, running Ian Magnuson and Mike Rockenfeller in the next two WEC races, suggest anything for a full Corvette GTE Pro effort? Or is it more of a benefit for the team to cycle more drivers in their new car? And I'll add the question that Michael isn't asking. Or is it being done to help put more miles on the car so they can possibly figure out more and be more successful at... 24 hours of Lamar and the rest of the IMSA season. I think it does all of that, and it adds one other thing too, which we've seen in the past uh, with these one-off or multiple-off uh, WC efforts. I think it helps them with their political argument with the WC about retaining their two uh, places on the grid for the Le Mans 24 hours. And I think it helps to allay some of the concerns that I'm sure the ACO technical department uh, have been offering because of that absence from a full season about getting sufficient data to help BOP for the new car for uh, the Le Mans 24 hours. Delighted to see that uh, Young Yan is is in that car. Delighted to see that the WC fans are going to get the opportunity uh, to see that in amongst the rest of the GTE Pro field. Do I think we're going to get a full season entry anytime soon? No, I don't. I regret that uh, I don't see that. Uh, that. Whilst I do believe that the Corvette, the new C8 Corvette, is you know, in parentheses, a world car. I don't believe that's going to be um, a product line with enough investment to justify the kind of budgets that are going to be needed for a full WEC season. I know we've seen stories elsewhere about uh, race teams interested in running a WC program. My understanding is they're rather predicated by GM putting their uh, hands in their pockets to help to fund that. And I think what we saw this week, we renamed checked earlier in the show, MP, the uh, the end of the Holden brand. We yeah. uh, should, should also add major plants in Thailand, which is my next stop, being sold on to Great Wall, uh, Chinese auto manufacturer. And actually more significant still, the cessation worldwide of right-hand drive production for GM. Um, so... The, the answer here is this is not the side of a manufacturer, an auto manufacturer, uh, looking to uh, show a huge amount of confidence in pushing numbers, is it? 
Uh, yes, they're going to be concentrating more on their niche products, but I do not see anywhere close to being the um, uh, the order of priority a C8 program for the full WC. I hope I'm wrong. I'm hoping somebody can turn around to me and say, no, 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 what do you know, Goodwin? But I simply don't see that in the current climate as being uh, a remote possibility. There we go. Uh, where do we go next? We go to... Daniel's got one here, but we're going to go to Ryan Terpstra. This is Graham. The genetic excuse for missing Circuit of the Americas does not pass the smell test. I have to agree here. It's complete nonsense. He says, in fact, it outright stinks. Either I'm missing what is really going on here, or they're shoveling a pile of crap. So uh, I don't quite the logistics thing that, yeah, no. So what's going on here, Graham? Um. I think there's six of one and a half. Well, maybe there might be seven of one and five of the other. Oh, don't uh, do fractions on me. I can't think. <laughs> Come on, man. Uh, the, have they got a problem? Yes, they've got a problem. And, and it is, I was I, I'm trying to recall who it was I was talking to, uh, must be a month or two ago, saying how tough the WEC calendar is on a manufacturer or a team with a new car. And that uh, car with the AR engine is effectively a new car. It's been... Um, you know, look, we're not, we're not talking small numbers, but a relatively low-budget effort uh, from the Team L&T uh, uh, efforts. So not a lot of um, meat on the bones beyond this. Both cars suffered pretty extensive problems in Bahrain, and that's not least because once those cars have left Silverstone, you don't see them back at base in Europe until after Bahrain. There has, I gather, been some delays. And, you know, your, your point is, is pretty well made, Ryan. It's slightly overstated. Have they got a, a logistical issue? They most certainly did have. Is there an optioneering side to this? Quite probably. Is there a message being passed here for reasons that may or may not be attached to the point I was making a little earlier about the Ferrari point? I wouldn't be remotely surprised. Um, you know, let, make no mistake, this is an effort being funded as a brand-building uh, exercise for Ginetta, effectively by one guy. Um, and I think he's correct in trying to make a point to those powers that be in any way he sees fit uh, in this instance. It should not be forgotten how important the drive of these individuals, and there are multiple of them through sports car racing, how their drive and their willingness and ability to continue to fund these programs, how important that's been in these interim years between top-class solutions. So I'd put it this way. I'm not entirely disagreeing with you. I'd like to feel as if uh, some of us can actually step a little bit away from the the tone and a little bit more into the understanding as to why decisions are made. Number one, absolutely, those cars are back at Garforth and are being um, more than tweaked, fully rebuilt. Um, they're very tired indeed after the first um part of the WC season and they intend to go to Sebring and be out there and punching and punching hard there will be I'm sure absolutely multiple updates of those cars for the run-in to and at Le Mans um, you know it's a degree of political um, 
you know, nuance in the in the statements that have been given by Janessa. I would be surprised if there weren't. Frankly, I think there's political nuance in just about every statement I see from a major team in terms of the decisions that they make. But uh, what I hope is happening in the background is some mature conversation about the future for Janessa and their uh, their prototype programs because there's a company with not a huge amount of, uh, of of spare resource consistently responding to the call to invest in a series of regulations. 2015, first company to come forward with LMP3, won the first championship. Um, you know, in the current iteration, brand new car, getting brave reviews. Uh, there's a cracking piece from uh, Stephen Kilby due, uh, certainly for DSC, and I'm hoping he's going to share a version of that uh, with Racer.com as well about uh, progress with the new uh, P3 car. Then the ridiculously quick um, LMP1 car, and they've got a hold in the range, and that needs to be taken into account. It needs to be, uh, uh, frankly, they need to change their mind. There needs to be a fifth manufacturer. If we're going to get the number of uh, factories involved in LMDH that everybody keeps telling me that we're likely to see, and I don't disbelieve them, then I think there's room. And I think it's unfortunate that they seem to have missed the bus. Well, you old bus missers. Let's see, we've got a couple more here in Wekasm, Elms, Echo. Then we have a couple in Hegenerau, couple in Fun. Actually, I have quite a few of everything, but we're trying to make the show not something that plunges either one into, of us into the deep end here this week. Uh, we're going to go to Right Turn Lover. It wouldn't be the week in sports cars without a Right Turn Lover question. Who asks, was the 2019 hashtag four hours of Shanghai the first race contested over two calendar years? Uh, now, this is all to do with the FIA Court of Appeals decision on the race win taken away from the 51, of course, a Ferrari, of course, a right-out infringement. That decision overturned um, uh, last week now. I yeah. think which day yeah. of the week it is. It was indeed last week. Um, the answer is, uh, being slightly cheeky about it, uh, probably not, but uh, I'll give you the, the, the credit if I say yes, but it, it wasn't the last, of course, because we, what we got about 24 hours later was the decision, and I've not checked the FI website yet this morning, but we haven't seen confirmation of this, but it's absolutely true that it's, it's been decided of the failure of the appeal um, for the last round of the ELMS by into Europol for the LMP3 uh, race and therefore championship win and therefore automatic uh, Le Mans entry and that appeal did fail. This was to do with the driver rules around uh, surrounding a red flag uh, period after a serious incident at the start of the Portimao race. So we had two of them, uh, both heard on the same day by the same FI Court of Appeal and both, you're absolutely right, right turn lover, determining the results of a significant international sports car race in a different calendar year to that which the race took place. Final question in the official category of Graham G. Goodwin Esquire comes from Damien Peachman. How likely is the all-female ELMS crew likely to get a Le Mans entry? It's a really, really good question. Uh, great effort here. Richard Meal, I think, deserves a great deal of credit um, personally um, for his level of support for teams and, for that matter, individual drivers amongst the, the people that gets individual sponsorship from Richard Mill is Alex Brundle, and quite right he should, motivated and very quick young man that he is. But he's certainly the driving force behind 
the full season effort under Richard Mill Racing, run by Signatech, led by Catherine Legg, but uh, Tanya Calderon and Sophia Fleur aboard that car. The interesting part of this, I think, MP, is the phrase that is used in the press release for um, for this, which talks about Separate this being but equal. Yes, a two a two year program. Now, I have two theories on this. Okay, uh, and they're they're kind of parallel uh, rather than concurrent. The um, the first is that they will allow these these girls to have a full season in the LMS to get all three of them up to speed in an LMP car, Women. and that we will we will all we will certainly see the car next year. The second is, and it's slightly difficult to justify this one. Um, Signatech have an auto entry as a result of winning the race last year. The problem is that the car has not been entered under Signatech. It's been entered under Richard Mille Racing. So by the rules, it doesn't qualify for <laughs> Signatech. By Sign- but having said that, as we know, the ACO can make their own rules up for this one. So they can justify this as being a Signatech run car that will race uh, for for signal with Signatech rather as a separate entity to the one they race in the FIWC which gets an entry anyway so the answer here is I think it depends on exactly what their priority is going to be at Le Mans this year I will say nothing other than there is another entry yet to be revealed um, that falls within a not dissimilar uh thought process within the ACO at the moment. That's Ooh. the thing I I can't say yet. Is this uh, now can I kinda can I can we do a little bit of hashtag breaking exclusive scoop here? Is this the rumored all male team? <laughs> I was thinking all fat guys, but that, that's uh, that's well, it's, actually it's not yeah. all, it's just one and it's me and uh, they say Pruitt you're at could, least four people the size of four people, so you can just could, go yourself. Couldn't get you out of the car, yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, which meant, meant for a heck of a twenty-four hours. And Frederick but, Sose uh, wouldn't se- wouldn't sell me the little lift device to get me out either. <laughs> so I mean, there's a lot of people conspiring but, against me here, Graham. But there's, there's there's a lot going on in the background. Most of which I think we'll know in well in days. We'll have to know in days because uh, the uh, the entry for the twenty twenty Le Mans twenty four hours is due to be revealed to us on the twenty eighth of February. So the answers to those questions we should know uh, by the time I'm actually home from Buriram in ten days. Well, in uh, just under ten days time, uh, you'll know in ten days time exactly what the answers are coming from the ACO are going to be. Uh, I think there's going to be some interesting choices ahead uh, because once again because of the unique way in which that uh, that entry is put together the uh, the large number of LMP2 teams and, and to a greater or lesser extent GTE teams in the European Le Mans series as well as at least one team and possibly more from the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship that don't currently have automatic entries uh, against their names um, are going to be I think biting fingernails to see whether or not uh, they're going to be lucky uh, to get on the list proper whether or not they'll be somewhere on the uh, reserve list or whether they'll just be asked to wait for next year there we go should also mention, because it stands that we didn't do a show last week, uh, first of all, 
Happy second anniversary, starting our third year. How does that work exactly? We started this in 2018. Uh, so while we were on vacation last week, that was actually, I think, the week or the timing of our anniversary. So we're starting. Is this starting our third? Yeah, third anniversary? Yes, it is. Yes. It started off. It started, uh, was it 18? Was it 18? Yes. Yes, wow. remember the whole, uh, yeah. the whole, all the email chain that you know of, of oh, betrayal yes. and the end of the world, and, <laughs> and you can never be on our show again, and you're the worst person, and all that nonsense. To which I say, yeah, thank you. Actually, this is probably the best best thing that could happen. Um, yeah, so congratulations, man. Uh, we made it three years. Uh, I'm- in the glow, in the glow. I'm not promising I'm there's going to be a fourth. You know, there might be a backlash. <laughs> we might get arrested, but, uh, you know, should mention as well that while we weren't here last week, a young guy by the name of Felipe Nazar, who I have written about a couple of times on the IndyCar side saying, hey, IndyCar people, uh, he was in Formula One. And he was really good. And boy, is he really good in them sporty cars and, Boy, isn't he a champion in them sporty cars? Uh, you should really consider him for IndyCar. Well, he got his first IndyCar test, second IndyCar test last week. Uh, this first time out, though, with the Carlin Racing team and was quick like a bunny in some fairly bad conditions. And so there's a pretty strong suggestion that he's going to be a busy guy. And could be two-timing himself, running both IMSA full season with the Action Express Racing Team and doing some of them IndyCar races for Carlin Racing. So that would all be pretty cool if you ask me. So just wanted to, uh, to wind the clock back a little bit. Uh, speaking of winding, well, I'm not saying we're winding up, but we're getting down to the last couple of categories. And why don't you lead us off, my friend, with... Hegenaral, and I'll hit the little uh, but, marker button. Well, let's go with uh, Hegenaral. And uh, the first question in our list comes from our good friend, Right Turn Lover, our little Swiss mate. Is there a way out of BOP? Okay, I'm raising my hand on this because I no, no, I have destroyed 47 <laughs> soapboxes on the topic of BOP. This is all yours, brother. And let me know um, if we need to roll out our, our Bushu Hammer Emporium jingle. No, no, I don't think we do. I think the answer is, I think we've got a, a, a straight choice here. Do you want... Uh, well, I, I guess, look, let's look forward here to... There are two classes this is now going to affect. It's going to affect GT3 in all of its iterations, because I think I'm going to call it right now GTLM, GT Pro, or Dead Men Walking, um, if the LMDH program comes together. So GT3 going forward and LMDH going forward. And I think you have a straight choice. What do you want? Do you want two absolutely awesome cars rocketing ahead of absolutely everybody and destroying the field? Um, Or do you want 20 car grids? Uh, That's the choice in the modern world. And for me, do I like BOP? No, no, I hate it like getting a sour jelly bean in an otherwise fruity uh, pack. But 
I do absolutely recognise that if we're going to get the depth of competition in these straightened times, that sadly some element of BOP um, is a necessary evil. That's all I've got to say about it. I, I can't see a way forward unless there's a fundamental shift in philosophy. The only place I think there might be a possibility for there to be more open competition on that front is when we get into zero emissions technology in the the middle part of the coming decade here. That point, maybe we'll get an opportunity for the manufacturers prepared to put their um, R&D budgets on the line uh, for a somewhat wider performance uh, window, should we say that. Um, Do I see that happening? Probably not. Uh, certainly can't see any prospect immediately if you've got three, five, six, eight uh, manufacturers at Le Mans being particularly happy about uh, insert name of aspirants manufacturer coming in with something sort of fuel cell derived and being 15 seconds a lot quicker than them. Can't see that being allowed to happen. Uh, so I think the answer, sadly, is no. Well, there we go. No soapbox required, kind of. Uh, let's see. Let's go to our pal Lance Snyder for the Bathurst 12 hours. Numerous drivers made a unique and interesting strategy, Graham. And that strategy call was to bend the car into oblivion prior to the race. <laughs> he then says, after one or two binnings, why didn't the drivers, drivers settle themselves down to at least make it to the race for their own teammates? It's a good question. Uh, of all the things to come out of recent Bathursts, both 12 hours and 1,000s. Clearly that, there is something magical about Mount Panorama that leads to this odd strategery that Lance has picked up on. What says you, Graham? Is there some sort of mountain flu that leads people to say, you know, in order to win the race, we need to destroy the car in practice and probably miss the race? Do you think they're off a little bit? Uh, yeah. Okay. First things first, um, and in particular to Sam Shaheen from the Ben Motorsport Park. Get well soon, Sam. Nasty, nasty accident and some nasty, nasty injuries for him in one of those shunts. I think to understand Bathurst, you've really got to see it. You've got to see it. The, the, and, and it's so di- – it really is a street track. That's really what that is. It's a street track, but at extreme high speed. And – it is a very old-fashioned sort of uh, motor racing circuit, and that means that the margins are tiny. Uh, in some cases, there was just poor luck in the case of some of those shunts. And in some cases, you know, maybe uh, just outside the edge of the available performance from one aspect of the, of the package, either behind the wheel or um, with the four wheels at each corner, uh, at least when the accident started. I think the, the, the answer here is it's just downright different. Um, and if you're used to driving on those circuits where people will moan and groan about track limits and that would be the, the worst thing that happens to them, in this instance, you go beyond track limits and you're into oblivion. And that, I think, is what we found on a number of occasions at Bathurst in years past, and we found it on a distressing number of occasions at Bathurst this time. No real difference in my mind to what we see, for instance, in the Nürburgring 24 hours. And what defines that race for me, MP, is those moments when you've got a car that is either dominating at the front of the race or 
uh, affecting a massive comeback drive through the field and then it goes quiet and you don't hear anything other than maybe 20 minutes later something pops up of the ticker in German and uh, Paul Truswell you know uh, translates it for us all saying uh, car off the road at, at uh, you know at insert name of awesome corner um, this is <laughs> that was you know, good this, I thought he got on the call real quick here yeah <laughs> but it's 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 that isn't it it's what do you want do you want every single circuit to be a herman tilke um gravel track fest um and for the defining you know uh message from race control being track limits turn six or do you want to have these standalone races at these astonishing facilities where good old-fashioned real world risk is the punishment for a little bit of over exuberance um for me long as people don't get hurt and like we said about sam and a couple of others who went away with uh, rather less significant uh, injury from that one for me i think this is why these guys do it and i celebrate the fact that we as a society still allow them to do that um and i hope that that continues for a long long time because i love those racetracks i love the fact that we can test man and machine and woman and machine for that matter at these racetracks and yeah uh, i don't want to see further artificial restriction uh, put in place let them decide whether or not they've got the capability to take on the challenge there we go uh let's see i'm gonna read this one to you too you just like let me okay. read you stuff i guess um <laughs> actually you should read this to me because it has american football stuff in it from uh, uh let's go for this is, this is uh, yeah Lake Effect Racing, listening to your week in IndyCar Q&A, MP, and talking about Marco Andretti made me think what the structure was of a team. I just assumed there's someone on the team that coached drivers on better techniques and mental aspect of that. Similar to NFL having position coaches, for example, a, uh, a QB coach, I presume that's quarterback yes. in the... The poor excuse for a rugby replacement you guys have got over there. Uh, teams of muses and professional cooks. Sorry, but not a coach. Or did I get the wrong idea? Uh, do teams have muses? I love that. Apparently, uh, I guess so. Or is that me- a, a typo meant to be Moses on the biblical episode of the weekend <laughs> sports cars? Uh, so, Lake Effect Racing. You would be rather spot on about the difference there's not a lot of commonality seen here for talking sports car team based coach uh, on the driving side, even yeah, just most aspects, lots of physios, lots of physical therapists that get employed for the serious endurance races, not the two hour, 40 minute IMSA or whatever. But you know, if we're talking 10, 12 plus hour long, You'll certainly have physios brought out, but that's about it. Uh, almost across the board entirely in sports cars. IndyCar, very different. I'd say about half the teams have someone that would be considered a driver coach, uh, passer downer of knowledge from having done it at a high level type. Dario Franchitti staying on with Chip Ganassi to do that there. Uh, Rick Mears, who retired in 1992, the end of the 92 season, I believe, has been with Penske ever since now, coaching many drivers. 
There are the, on the timing stand, kind of, call it more pit lane-based uh, sages. And then there are some real true up, you know, if we're on an oval, up top in the spotter's perch or out in the corners, like real what you would consider dedicated driver coaches. Out shooting video, taking notes, uh, doing on-the-spot analysis, corner by corner. There are a number of those as well uh, in IndyCar that do that. Really what you would be more familiar with seeing on, in say, junior formulas uh, or just a dedicated uh, going to some sort of racing circuit and receiving direct coaching from uh, whatever uh, series or company might do that. So you do see a lot of that in open-wheel racing. Not so much in sports cars, though. I will say, though, we do have a thing in... Well, granted, if we're talking IndyCar, uh, we're looking at at least half the teams, if not more, uh, if not the majority of teams being owned by ex-drivers, some of them more recent than others. So there's a lot of institutional knowledge there. It's also a place where a lot of youth tends to happen, where you come up this ladder, you get into open wheel. There's highly defined global open wheel training categories. And so just the the culture of training it's been around forever, therefore it doesn't surprise me that there is a very strong uh, aspect of that when it comes to the top category here of maintaining that. would say sports car is just a little bit different. Certainly, Graham, as we know, youth has become a somewhat new concept uh, this past decade when we look back at it in context to decades before, it's going to stand out as the one where sports car racing got young where sports car became a truly viable thing for the 18, 19, 20-year-old to take on, not just the guy who fell out after however many years in IndyCar, F1, or you know just purely 40, 30, 50-year-old gentleman or gentlewoman drivers. It's really a place where kids coming up in the sport want to go to sports car racing, so I think we've seen a little bit of a change on that end in the, the driver side, but oddly I haven't seen the complementary coaching aspect continue as we do in the open wheel side. But there is a bit of a unique thing, as we know, Graham, where sure seems like a lot of former drivers either own teams in sports cars or are team managers or are strategists or are consultants you know, we're talking Alan McNish, uh, who's a driver manager. And you say, so uh, if he is at the track and his client, Harry Ticknell, is there, do you think we, Alan, <laughs> isn't laying into him about, hey, I just saw the video of you here. What the hell are you doing? You know, uh, two inches well, to the left to or otherwise. So uh, let's not, not say formal. I just say let to close less of a formal structure like we see elsewhere, but it still happens. Uh, I mean, it's 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 an interesting thing sharing the the TV booth with Alan, uh, and with various interests, whether or not that's friendship, business relationships with a number of people around that paddock. When drama comes forward, what what you see is the immediate human reaction to that, and that it's not an eye opener because you know we've all known Alan for for a long time, and he's old. We know what kind of guy. Yeah, uh, a short. Um, and we know what kind of guy he is, but it is 
it is an eye opener when you see the level to which that kind of impacts the human side of things. Um, in terms of the people you'll see around the paddock, there's a number of guys, uh, very familiar faces to people who've been watching uh, racing for five, 10, 20 years that you will still see around uh, in addition to their varied racing efforts, assisting uh, teams with their driver coaching. I'll give you, for instance, of Warren Hughes, who's been around with RLRM Sports over the last uh, year or so with uh, helping out with John Ferrano. Uh, you'll see all sorts of people uh, wandering out of garages and, you know, uh, Jamie Campbell Walter uh, with management and driver coaching, Nick Manassian with driver coaching, management, you name it. Uh, so there'll be all sorts of guys around that have that part on their CV, not least because, one, they've got an awful lot to offer. Two, it keeps them in a business relationship and therefore in gainful employment. And I'm delighted that we get some of those slightly more older statesmen still involved uh, in the sports. You know, it then gets into a generational thing. Um, it was introduced um, not so long ago to the new manager for Jupp von Utert, and that is Tom Christensen's son uh, managing uh, the commercial aspects of uh, Jan van Utert's uh, ongoing efforts in sports car racing. I think we're going to see more and more and more of this. And it's great because it just adds a little bit more, doesn't it, to that kind of slightly family atmosphere of you know, the sports car racing paddock. And I get the impression it's not a paddock I know well, but I'm sure you're going to tell me it's the same with IndyCar too. Very much the case. And that's, it's funny, the uh, the situation we often see there is the, Dad, shut up. <laughs> okay, I know, I know, I know. I know you won the Indy 500, and I haven't. Shut up. Leave me alone. You won a championship. What? Okay, I got it. Great. Uh, you know, also this, not the Flintstone era that you raced in, you know, today cars are black or color instead of black and white than when you drove them. So anyways, uh, yeah. Um, but it's a great point. Uh, it's a great thing to highlight. I do would expect there to be, there certainly seems to be an opportunity for coaching to grow to a higher level in sports cars, just again, simply due to the fact that we have uh, a continuing youthification uh, within most paddocks. So that's, uh, that's what I think. That's what I say. Who knows if I am right. Push on with Heck and Hal. And uh, well, I'm going to chuck your way. Uh, for no other reason than um, I think you'd probably give a more coherent answer than I would at this time of the, uh, the day here. GT cost reduction compared to prototypes. It comes from our good mate, Andrew Baxter. Baxter, uh, and soap- I think he came up with our jingle just to go with his soapbox rant. So, oh, well, in which ooh. case, I think we've got to play for a third time. And we'll count us in with a little three, two, and one. Hammers for you, hammers for me. And we're back. Thank you again, Andrew, with your own theme song for your own question. Do I spy a little bit of self-interest here? It's okay. I named the podcast uh, after be- myself, so clearly I'm an egotistical maniac. This this could be a theme, couldn't it? Um, everyone is talking about cost reduction in prototypes, yet we're approaching a decade of LMP2 cars costing less than GT cars, even some GT4 models. No one bats an eye. What gives? 
everyone's talking about it and no eyes are batting yeah it's a really good point Uh, maybe this comes back to my ferrari rant and no i'm not going to run the theme music again because i said rant soapbox moment uh about ferrari and hey if you're going to sell them you can't use them as actual assets in the beginning i don't know andrew part of me just wonders if the relative comparative inexpensiveness of lmp2 cars to their gt counterparts just comes down to a fact of name value brand value Uh, the fact that if you do buy that ferrari even though it is the most ridiculous expensive gt3 or gte car from a cost standpoint it's you know it's probably going to be worth at least that amount if not more if you hold on to it and sell it at some point in the future or in the retail market or similar with a porsche or many others so I wonder if that has something to do with things. They're expensive, but people acknowledge and appreciate those costs and are therefore willing to spend more, and there's some sort of second-hand market value to them, whereas LMP2 cars, while they many do indeed cost less, I don't know if there's that same attachment of value because there's a modest aftermarket or or secondary market for them within the industry but i don't foresee anyone buying them as an investment thing for the future and therefore i just wonder if folks don't really look at and go oh yeah those are actually fairly cheap and we should praise that for being what it is we should i'm just saying collectively i don't know if that sentiment is one that would win out so it's a great recognition for sure just don't foresee it changing to err on the side of, yeah, LMP2, pretty smart, go do that. Yep, indeedy. Um, now, looking, the final question uh, for for her general appears to be one that's probably for me, doesn't it? It's SRA Smoking Puppy 841 said, uh, well, if Silverstone had to close for a season, how tragic that would be. Uh, where would the WC, ELMS, SRO's Blompan GT3 Insurance Series Cup World Challenge powered by AWS, he says, whatever it's called this week, relocate to if they had to remain in the UK? Good question. Um, there is only one other track, if I recall correctly, that has hosted um, LMP1, or I think then LMP900, racing. And uh, that is Donington Park back in 2001. Yeah, that what sounds was about there. right. That was there with the, what was then, I think it's still an ALMS race, wasn't it? Or was that the very first ELMS? We've had, of course, ELMS races at Donington Park uh, previously. Plenty of places that could host GT3 racing, by the way. Um, Brands Hatch does a fine job of that without a shadow of a doubt. Ulton Park is scary, scary um, for Barford GT3s and probably um, would be uh, would not be appropriate for LMP2 and definitely wouldn't be a, uh, LMP1 could level in terms of its scary, scariness. But um, Donington Park is the one that's, uh, that stands out. There's lots of other places I'd love to see them race. Uh, we've got some awesome second and third tier tracks in the UK that uh, it would be great to see international sports car racing at uh, the one that uh, for some reason just pops straight into my mind is Anglesey now Anglesey um, not got that kind of level of, of, of um, safety rating, but the backdrop to it is absolutely magnificent. It's right on the cliff tops, the shore, 
um, of the North Sea. You can see over to the mainland of, uh, of Wales, Anglesey being an island just off the coast of North Wales. And as a racing backdrop, um, has few peers, but uh, we, we, you know, did, was lucky enough to be invited for a couple of years to go up and help out with what we have here in November, the Race of Remembrance, put together by the awesome group of people at Mission Motorsports, a charity here in the UK that supports uh, the rehabilitation of um, physically and psychologically injured uh, servicemen and servicewomen uh, through motorsports, and they do uh, for Remembrance Weekend a fabulous race that stops. Um, in time for there to be remembrance service on pit lane and then the race restarts but uh, gave me an opportunity first hand to see just how beautiful that track is but no I think Donington Park would be the only other one um, that would be possible with LMP1 machinery my guess is that Brands Hatch might just cut it for LMP2 for ELMS and I'd love to see that it is one of my favorite places in the world you're completely wrong we need to go to Mondello Park what a what a place granted you can what only a place and, you can you know what there's the a pole winner would a, win the race because the a, the track is as wide as a p1 car so therefore <laughs> that but yeah there is p1 car there is a p1 car there really? there is if 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 um if his collection is uh still there martin perrain of course the late and very great ex-owner of lola had his personal collection there and there was at least one lola lmp 900 in that collection as well as by the way um a couple of uh group c cars the ford c100s both iterations of those in the the museum attached to the circuit it actually neatly fits in with uh, uh another of our remaining questions we'll come to that shortly but uh at uh, mondello park fond memories of a couple of british gt races there but uh, yeah uh we've not got a huge stock anymore of top class circuits in the uk they're all pretty good don't get me wrong but you know in the current kind of uh, scheme of things there's no way that you could have i don't know an lmp1 hybrid at castle coombe for instance that that just wouldn't be wouldn't be allowed we're gonna go where are we going graham we are going to the final category that being f-u-n fun and i'm gonna make another little marker clackety clack of the keyboard shall we shall you shall i i should read that one to you you done read the last one to yourself that's just bad hosting practices on my part well look actually looks like we got a couple that are similar one from robin crickman one from jeff grambowski that is an awesome last name by the way um i don't know if anyone calls you the dude but we will here on this show uh jeff says I've heard your complaints about the Sebring Media Center. What racetrack has your favorite media center? He says, I've seen some small baseball teams install soft-serve ice cream stations in media centers. Are there any unique offerings at a track that you can recall? And uh, Robin says, this is primarily for Marshall. Uh, You have many years' experience reporting on races from the media center in the track side, but recent circumstances have meant uh, this past year you often had the primary experience uh, of watching races from a video screen, meaning at home. Uh, would you offer reflections on how you find these two different? Well, let's go to the first one about favorite media center, least favorite, and best amenities from your recollection, Graham. 
Right, well, I'll, I'll give you the Mondello Park example. Tiny, tiny media room at Mondello Park. And my recollection of that is there being literally three or four seats in the main body of the media centre. And we more or less filled that with any sports car for uh, British GT. And after having been there for two full days, having what can only be described as an extremely rude and fairly elderly Irishman telling me that I was sitting in his seat. Declan Brennan was there? Yeah, it's Declan. Declan, there you go. Um, but the uh, best ones, well, it's, they tend to be categorized in various ways. One is accessibility, particularly you'll know this, with video kit and uh, camera kits. Trekking up and down stairs all day, every day um, can get a bit old if you're there for a, a better part of a week. Um, amenities, certainly, and then view, without a shadow of a doubt. So let's cover off one of those for starters. For all sorts of reasons, not on everybody's list of favorites is Shanghai International Circuit, but the view is amazing. This is the one of the two iconic bridges that goes across the track. One is hospitality space. The other one is the media room or the main media room. So the cars run directly underneath um, the media center. That's one of the very best, without a shadow of a doubt. Amenities, Fuji, barking mad uh, vending machines, of course, good. And bento boxes for, for lunch is another big uh, favorite with our guys. One of the ones I was not aware of until fairly recently is in the Daytona Tower. And I hope it's still there with the new one, which is the Jim France hot dog um, area. Have you experienced this one? I have not. Is there, there's a hot dog it's machine? Awesome. No, no, it's a, it's a whole thing with all the fixings. The whole lot is there, and it's, it's, it apparently comes from uh, Jim's memories that that's when they went racing. That was always there on tap, and he's, he's laid that on for anybody that's in that orbit, in the, uh, the, the media, the, the press room, in the tower, on the outside of Daytona International Speedway, fully stocked, all times of the day and night, away you go, and you sort of go and fix yourself a hot dog. All kinds of awesome, that one. There's so many. There's some, some very, very, very good press rooms in the world of motorsport. Amongst the ones that aren't, Silverstone have finally put windows in theirs uh, in the new uh, wing building. That was a ridiculous design that you you couldn't either see or indeed hear the fact there were cars on track. Numerous, numerous times you'd look up a timing screen and think, oh, God, the, track, the cars are on track because you couldn't hear or see them. Um, some of them are a little bit make, do, amend. We've got uh, some of the smaller tracks in the UK where you've got them in old pit garages and with absolutely no view of the track, etc. But just trying to think through some of the better ones where you don't get all your stuff stolen, uh, which is another good thing uh, because that is another feature of a number of tracks around the world stand up into Lagos where they didn't just steal the uh, contents they stole the lockers that they were in as well um, which uh, aside from that Fuji great view like that place Nürburgring excellent uh, Monza very good slight uh, thievery problem there as well Barcelona not that great a view and major thievery problems there too Spa pretty average view um, marginal thievery problems, uh, particularly during the Spa 24 hours, the, the, uh, the 
coverage of night. The new press room at, at uh, Paul Rickard, much as we didn't like being moved from the old one, which is very old school, the new press room at Paul Rickard is excellent and has very good coffee. Um, so that's another kind of uh, marker. Needs good coffee. So I think the answer is that, that the ladies and gentlemen of the press are reasonably well catered for. The one I'm looking forward to seeing for the first time, I didn't get to go for the first year, is the new press room at Road Atlanta. Uh, because the old one was one of my absolute favourites. I think one of the best views at a racetrack uh, for the media anywhere. So you're looking to your right and looking at the, t- the apex of the final turn. And I, my vivid memory of my first visit there, as the cars came out for first practice, was Max Angelelli fully lit in the Cadillac, um, launching himself off that final uh corners curbing and i thought the thing was going to come in through the window um absolutely amazing place to watch cars absolutely in extremis and i hope they've kept that with what looks like a superb facility at road atlanta i've yet to step into the new facility as well let's see i'll throw some favorites at you while it lasted i enjoyed the baltimore grand prix media center not because it offered any particularly exquisite views, but because it was inside of a very busy convention center and knowing that it would be in action almost every day of the week with something, they installed a Starbucks. <laughs> Just Ooh. like a hundred feet from the main door to the media center. So there was no need to Google and try and find proper coffee on the way into the track in the morning Granted, groggy going up uh, the the escalator, but once you got to that second floor, no joke, it was just the best convenience in the world. You know, I don't know how much money I spent. Couple years too, Graham. It was hot as balls. I've lost track of how many frappuccino, whatever e type things with two or three shots of espresso in them that I bought, but. Oh, that was awesome. And breakfast, too. You know, get a croissant, get a whatever. I mean, it, that was pretty darn good. You mentioned Brazil. It's another one that jumps out. It's one that I loved. This was for the IndyCar race in uh, Sao Paulo uh, at the Samba Drome. And that one, you want to talk about a view. So there was the uh, Holiday Inn Anjahambi that we stayed at. All the teams stayed at. The whole actual track was fenced off uh, to prevent Americans being kidnapped and sold. Um, So there was, you know, there was no real worry about that, but it was this amazing, somewhat high-rise hotel in the middle of the circuit. And the final race there in 2013, I have to admit, I could have gone down to the media center and watched the race there on one of the screens. The track itself, I didn't really need to shoot any photos for that event. And it was a, it's a super rectangular circuit, very stretched out from end to end. Point being, if you go to any one destination, you'll get a good view of that little section, but you're not seeing the vast majority of the circuit. It wasn't one of those kind of tracks where you go up into a, a region of the circuit and you can see at least a third of what's going on. You kind of isolate yourself by wandering out. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to stay in my hotel room. 
and was able to see about, I want to say half the track, but almost half the track from the 20th floor or whatever, just pulled the curtain all the way back. And here's the other thing. I've never mentioned this before. I don't know why I have it. So it was looking at the back straight and some of that complex there. And the back straight was far enough away where there was a bit of depth. The background behind it running parallel to the back straight was a highway. And behind it, there's all kinds of homes and whatnot. Very downtown city picturesque. I busted out my camera and my 500 millimeter lens on a monopod (laughs) and was shooting some pretty cool and interesting photos of the car streaking down the back straight at 180 miles an hour from my freaking hotel room, man. And I'm sitting there going, I kind of feel guilty. This is almost too easy. I don't really need to go outside to get anything. I'm just shooting for myself and getting some nice low shutter speed fun stuff. I've got timing and scoring on my computer. I've got the IndyCar radio or whatever it was. I'm, this is about the laziest dang thing I've ever done. So I actually watched the entire race from the hotel, got everything that I needed, and the air quote media center was more or less at the just the bottom of the hotel over about 50 feet. So when the race is over, I just took the elevator down, walked over 50 feet, and was right there for the press conference. No one was the wiser. So it worked out great. I absolutely, I mean, uh, yeah, again, I, I probably cheated on that one, but uh, there you go. I would say the I'll best. Couple... Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. No, I was just going to say the was... best media center, though. And if you've been in it, I would say you might. I'd have a hard time hearing too many arguments that there is anything better. And that is the Indianapolis Motor Speedway with the media center positioned on the front straight driver's left uh, close to the it terminates. It ends not too far away from start finish. The fact that in this media center, which has huge glass windows all along the front straight, you can walk up, look down and see not only the race, but cars streaking past you at 230 miles an hour, it's it's just insane, Graham. Uh, it is, just from a view standpoint, it's about one of the best views you can get, and you can't buy this one. It, it, is, it is fairly insane. Then from a food standpoint, the floor directly below the media center is the cafeteria where if you, and I made great use of the soda dispensers for a long time. I stopped doing that a year or two ago, but free Coke, this, that, and the other all day, every day, coffee, you name it, chocolate milk. They have quite often. They've got a popcorn machine, Uh, but then again, based on your accreditation and what you have on your little uh, badge, you can go down and eat lunch every single day for free granted and i appreciate the effort they put in you might be better off dinging some food out of a dumpster uh it's not i'm going to assume that it is meant for human consumption Uh, i cannot guarantee that at all times um i bring my own food every day and, and that's just me but for those who are looking for the full freeloading experience 
You've got the best view I've seen in any media center ever, and that includes Lamar. That includes lots of places that I've been. Uh, plus, you've got all the food and drink you could possibly consume. Uh, that part is super amazing. But I'll throw in one thing because you mentioned uh, what the soft serve ice cream wasn't a media center thing, but a team that I worked with back in Indie Lights team I worked with back in 1994. Driver was a guy by the name of Doug Boyer. His father, Herb Boyer, founded a little company by the name of Genentech and had sold it for, I think, $2 billion at that point. Went to the season opening race, I believe, at Phoenix, Phoenix International Raceway Oval. Believe it or not, Phoenix is rather hot. Uh, And so it was forecasted to be 9 million degrees. I don't know where it came from, if they had it, if they just bought it and had it sent to the shop. I can tell you that a full soft serve ice cream machine, like large industrial, like the size of a refrigerator, was loaded onto the transporter and went to Phoenix. And, man, it was, hot, again, hot as balls. And we were the most popular team in the paddock because we're the only one where you could walk up, grab an ice cream cone, pull the lever, and just, uh, I, I think that's the weekend I started getting fat. I think that that might be the answer there. <laughs> I'm going to add a couple because was, it, it's these memories things. It's stream of consciousness stuff, isn't it? Two I will add for completely different reasons. One is we don't get very many oval tracks. Daytona's uh, outside press tower, awesome view without a shadow of a doubt. Actually, the broadcast booth from Dubai, fantastic view there. Um, Rocking a motor speedway in the UK when that was still open, fantastic uh, view from that one. Uh, but for me, because, almost because it's not an oval, it is a traditional track, the press room at red bull ring is amazing absolutely amazing uh we you know we all regret the fact that the european le mans series doesn't go there anymore uh if only the uh, refrigerators with the free drinks had something other than bloody red bull in them it would be absolutely ideal but on a similar vein and for a different reason i i am lost in admiration for the efforts of richard crail um at the um the bathurst uh, track for the Bathurst 12 hour where Richard uh, I gather some years ago managed to persuade race organizers then Yeehaw events that would be a great idea at the end of the uh, the 12 hours uh, Bathurst 12 hour to uh, put on pizza and beer for the assembled media that has remained a staple part of that event since. And by the way, uh, heads up to uh, those at uh, Rolex 24 with Acura actually taking on the pizza, not the beer, but the pizza aspect. Very much appreciated, boys and girls. Um, But he now has both of those arrangements sponsored. So it is is ingrained in the Bathurst 12 Hours thing that one of the sponsorship agreements, which I believe Richard has actually uh, dealt with himself, is to get local vendors and suppliers to sponsor the provision of both those essential foodstuffs, that is pizza and beer, um, for the assembled media. There's some fine people in motorsport. Amen. And we also need to give our pal John Ewart at Road America for his tradition of bringing beer and buying pizza uh, after whatever IMSA or IndyCar or similar races over there. So, yeah, there's some really good folks who grasp. But you know what? Y'all are going to be here later than anybody. Um, let's party. Yeah. Uh, Graham Goodwin, <laughs> we have – what do we have? We have one more. Uh, or Robbie Quickman, you, 
you asked about uh, watching races from home uh, and having to report on them. Uh, I think most reporters, Robin, have had to do that more than once a year, if not a couple times a year, across probably many forms of racing. And I've had to do this for a decade plus, so it's no major difference, frankly. Uh, also, some events, you do end up getting the best grasp of what is taking place while at the track during the race by being in the media center. There are others where you absolutely want or need to be outside uh, to either talk to people or get the firsthand contacts that a TV camera or TV cameras won't give. There are admittedly some races where I'm going to be better informed by sitting in the media center, strange as it sounds. I left my house, flew somewhere, drove somewhere, to then sit down in front of a TV that's probably smaller uh, and, and a seat that's less comfortable than my own at home, but that uh, sometimes is normal. So um, nothing major, majorly out of the norm there, to be honest. So one more to go, brother. James Counter. It is James Counter, and he says, what's your favorite part of a race weekend? Hashtag me personally. Heart rate quickens when he hears Johnny Palmer come over the PA at Brands Hatch when the DTM cars come out to the pit lane at 9 a.m. What, what about is you, wrong with you, James? How could Johnny Palmer possibly elicit that kind of... Or unless your heart quickens because you want to kill him. That's what, that's what no, happens no, no, I with think, mine. I, I think there's something got on there between uh, Johnny and James. Well, I mean, Johnny is a, a fine-looking young lad. We don't know about you, James, but... Uh, I did, I, kidding aside, I love myself. Some young Mr. Palmer, a person I've shared comms with uh, more than once late at night at both Le Mans and Daytona. What about you, Graham? What uh, makes the good old Goodwin ticker fire? Uh, we all we all have this kind of this way of doing it. For me, I love the first walk down the pit lane on arrival at big race meeting because there is always something we weren't expecting. Less so now in the internet age, but there's always something that you either find or you're looking for. Or uh, I love that. I that that for me. That's uh, we, we tend to bring them to you in daily sports car with our first paddock notes. Uh, but uh, the tradition basically is a lot, as long as we're not going into a press room where they're going to get thieved. Drop the bags, establish base camp. And the first couple of us ready, we'll have a wander down pit lane with a camera, with a notebook, and get the first news from a racetrack. Um, beyond that, I love there's a bit of a ritual on big race mornings when we've got the, the writers ready, the photographers are ready, they're about to go out. There's a little bit of a sense of theatre about that one. I have my own um, way I deal with my guys. You know, and you know, I see them very much as my guys, they're my friends and my colleagues. Uh, make sure everybody's okay, make sure everybody's ready, make sure everybody's fed and watered, make sure we've got a plan, and make sure basically everybody's okay. I do love those moments on the big race mornings um, as we kind of dispatch the team to go and do their stuff. Uh, they're, for me, they're the ones for me. How about you, MP? So, James, having done this for the vast majority of my life, there's certainly the just coming out of winter and getting to see vehicles go quickly in front of me thing that I always look forward to, whether it's testing with open wheel or sports cars or similar. That's always really just a, a fun sensation thing. That's maybe most enduring though. And this spans all forms of racing that I happen to cover 
would be a lot of what Graham spoke about. It might be a walk down pit lane, might be a walk down the paddock. Often will come, if I'm talking on the open wheel side, Robin Miller and I going out and wandering around and pestering people and, and saying bad things about them. Um, it's going and having you know lunch at, say, uh, the Honda tent, which is always, you know, I know if I want to find Dario Franchitti between 12 and 1 p.m. each day, that's where I need to go, uh, and a few others as well. And it is just... <sighs> Minus the pub and the ten, being 10 pints deep, that's the kind of sort of fun that I look forward to the most because it's just a group of us, whomever, sitting around a table. It could be at Daytona. Uh, it could be wherever. It's the family fun, getting together, sharing tales, telling lies, calling each other SOBs and just tearing into one another. That's the best. That's the thing I miss the most. The cars, you sound like you're breathing uh, electrons here, by the way. You might do a plug and unplug as we're almost finished here, brother. Um, This is a thing for me, James, that the cars I love never will stop loving the cars. They amaze me at all times. I can go and see race cars almost anytime I want here locally at either Sears Point or Laguna Seca, it's the people. Not all the people. I know certainly there are a lot of people that show up to the track and go, not that idiot when they see me, but it's the friends, it's the camaraderie. That's the thing I look forward to most when I'm at the track. There's no one specific time. It Often it'll happen many times throughout a weekend. I, go, I see Wayne Taylor. I just get a, pardon my French, a big shit-eating grin because I know I'm going to go over to him and say the meanest, nastiest thing I can think of just to put him on his heels and then hope that he steps out of the back of his head and realizes, oh, Pruitt's effing with me again. And then he says something to me that you're like, oh, you're going to hell for that one. And, you know, then then we just, you know, but it's that kind of thing. Uh, Or a Brad Kettler, you know, and it's just this huge hug. And, uh, you know, it, his always, hey, how you doing, big pimpin'? Like, that's yeah, that's the absolute standard Brad Kettler greeting. How you doing, big pimpin'? Um, and I'll say, hey, how you doing, BK? Hey, what's up, Burger King? And it's whatever, wherever the conversation goes from there. That's the stuff that I love most, James. The people, as I sound very California, the people are the, the heart, the sustainable part of the sport. The cars do genuinely come and go. But in theory, if you're doing this right, this environment we work in, from the drivers to the mechanics and owners, even the fellow media types, whatever, you know, yesterday, what, Mazda Motorsports PR rep Efren Olivares sent me a text with a photo of his just-completed vintage Formula Ford he's been working on, right? Uh, That's the best. Efren and I can talk about Mazda and DPIs all day long. You want to know, honestly, man, what interests me the most? I can't wait to see him to find out more about the build and the challenges and what he's going to do with the car. I won't name the driver, Graham, because I really shouldn't get us into a lot of trouble, but 
<laughs> I spent 42 minutes on the phone this morning with a well-known race car driver, champion, like very well-known. Needed to speak with him for a magazine article. Just shot him a text. Hey, mate, let me know if you've got a couple minutes. Uh, need to throw a couple of dumb questions at you for something I'm writing. Text me back. Not a problem. Hopping in the car, driving wherever. I'll give you a ring then. Calls. And my only assumption is we've both been watching on Netflix the World War II in color documentary series at the same time unknowingly. So in this 42-minute conversation, the last 20 was about racing. The first 22 was about Hitler and Marcus Aurelius. Oh, 100. No, and, and, and we're involved. Started, oh, are you aware of this philosopher and psychiatrist who said that uh, he did this series of interviews with murderers and met one guy who murdered 16 people and yet was the most normal person he'd ever met, which brought him to rationalize that he believes that if he ever met Hitler, he might actually like him because serial killers and mass murderers, some have the ability to compartmentalize their behavior and be very normal people, uh, if not charming people, that you might like when they aren't, you know, being architects of mass murder of millions of people. And again, this, I'm just mentioning this, James, because with this driver in particular, this is actually a lot of how our conversations go. It's the, okay, well, the the business thing I got to ask you about, the car, the this, the that, the team, the whatever. If anything, that's the boring part of the conversation. Can't wait to get on the phone or see whomever in person. And you go, how did you just spend 20 minutes talking about Hitler? We both agreed, bad guy, just for anyone that was curious, we're we're anti-Hitler, no question there. But just you go, and when we were done with the conversation, we were both laughing, like, do you realize we just spent the majority of this call talking about frickin' Hitler? (laughs) That's the stuff, James, though, where you go, all right, it's it's the ability to have those kinds of relationships that stand out to me most from a race weekend. And I know I just described something over the phone on a non-race weekend, but it's just a continuation of those relationships that are sustained and amplified when you get to hashtag me personally, see those folks in person. Wonderful stuff. Absolutely wonderful stuff. It is the people, without a shadow of a doubt. It's the people. Cars are awesome. Racing's awesome. It's the people. Yeah, except Johnny Palmer, though. Bit of a no, no, bit John. of an imposter. Bad egg for no. sure. He loves Hitler, from what I hear. Oh, I'm <laughs> telling you. Oh, I mean, I thought it was him. No, I thought it was Himmler. I think you may have got that one wrong. Daimler. Oh, I, I misunderstood. It wasn't Hitler or Himmler. It was Daimler. Daimler Benz. He's a fan of Daimlers. Okay, I got it. Um, have we sullied enough reputations in this episode, Graham? Or should we say farewell? I've just checked with the lawyers. Hang on a second. Okay, guys. Uh, no, apparently. But uh, that's all we've got time for. Um, uh, awesome to join you again uh, and apologies to the listeners that we missed last week for very important reasons for it surrounding uh, looking after my family and that's on the odd occasion and it is the very odd occasion takes precedence uh, great to catch up lots to come uh, from me in the coming week Buram next 
where, you might ask? Middle of nowhere, Brazil, Thailand for the Asia Le Mans series. And by the time you and I speak next, we will have, MP, a list of 62 cars, which will be the entry for the 2020 Le Mans 24 hours. Wow. And maybe some future news, too, that we're not super happy about as well. But uh, I am Graham Goodwin. That is Marshall Pruitt. Uh, I'm going to say thank you to Cooper Tires. Who do you want to say thank you to, Graham Marshall? I, I want to say thank you, uh, and it is Marshall, uh, say thank you to the awesome people at the Justice Brothers. Well, we have been the weekend sports cars for the week of whatever time this is in the year of our Lord 2020. It's a train wreck, but we love it.